when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than, any, than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast, as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, John. So we are in our fourth week of eight weeks in the book of Esther. Please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. That's the only place we'll be today. Um, And and we're going to, again, work this pattern. We're going to review where we are up to this point in the story. So I'll go through the little bit of a historical background, the first three chapters. Then we will unpack chapter 4. And then after that, we'll have kind of a closing segment uh, talk about application, ask some questions, that sort of a thing. So uh, in, in chapter 4, the year is now 475 B.C. The story starts in 483 uh, B.C. This is now about eight uh, years later. The place is Persia, which is present-day Iran. Uh, if you recall from the earlier uh, weeks, we talked about how um, some 125 years earlier, the Jews have been carried away into exile And after the exile was over, after 70 years, uh, most of the Jews went back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. Some stayed in Babylon. Others moved further east to Susa because the, for a couple of reasons. One was the economic opportunities were better in Babylon and Susa where they were, uh, Babylon they were already established. Susa was the capital of the, of the new kingdom of the world. So there'd be better economic opportunities there. Going to Jerusalem was going to be really hard work. You're going to have to rebuild the city without a wall and that can be uh, problematic. But there are other reasons that some of the Jews didn't go back to Jerusalem. They'd been in exile for 70 years and, and, um, um, some of them, uh, some of them were questionable as to whether or not they were fully Jewish, whether or not they should be even allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And so, some of them uh, stayed in Babylon. Some of them went went to uh, Susa. And Mordecai and Esther, who are cousins, but Mordecai is considerably older, but they're cousins. They were part of the uh, the group of families that went to uh, Susa, and that sets up chapter one. 483 B.C., the king of Persia, a guy named Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, he has a party for 187 days. There's actually two parties, but it totals 187 days. He wants to show off his grandeur. He wants to show off his wealth. He wants to show off his status and his power. Uh, he's, he's trying to make the people feel insecure and then make them feel like they're fortunate to have such a great leader as him taking care of them. Uh, but also he uses it as sort of a war council to gather all of his military advisors to talk about this uh, campaign that they're going to have against Greece. They want to take over Athens. 
And so uh, they, they have this war council as well. On the last day of the party, day 187, we are told in the scripture that when the king was merry with wine, so he was schnockered, he decides that he wants his wife, the queen Vashti, to come and, and show her off, have her walk around in this sort of exalted state in front of all of his drunken friends to also remind them, not only do I have all this wealth and power, but I also have the most beautiful woman in the, in the kingdom as my wife. So uh, they send a message to Vashti to come and do this, and she says, no, I'm not going to do that. She refuses. So the king got very angry and immediately went to his counselors, his cabinet, and, and these men decide, well, we're not going to let a crisis go to waste. We're going to get something out of this. And so they tell the king, here's what you should do in a situation like this. You need to banish the queen Vashti, never to see her again. She's no longer queen. Make somebody else better than Vashti, the new queen. We'll figure that out later. But in the meantime, you also have to write an edict under the laws of the Medes and Persians, which can never be revoked, that says that no wife in the entire Persian kingdom at any time for any reason can refuse a command or a demand from her husband because they're worried that this is going to get this word is going to get out and their wives are going to start pushing back on them and so the king says great let's do it he's still drunk but he gets the guys to write this decree which he signs and then he takes off for war and he's he's in, in, in war for four years and and the war doesn't go well for them the Greeks push them back, and so he finally comes back to Susa. He's a defeated king, shouldn't have lost this. This should have been a, an easy win on their schedule, you know. And, and they weren't even in the playoffs yet, and the Greeks were not a playoff team. They, they should have won this, okay? He comes back, he's humbled, a bit humiliated, somewhat emasculated. And he finds in his sorry state when he gets back, and this is confirmed by extra-biblical, in other words, um, histories outside of the Bible, that he gets back and he misses Vashti. But then he's reminded that he has this edict that Vashti's been banished, so he can't see banished. And so then he goes to his counselors again, and they come up with yet another goofy idea, and yet this goofy idea is ordained by God. It's ordained by God. It's something that God is helping to arrange because God knows what's going to happen in the future. And so his counselors say, why don't you have a contest and, and test out more than 300 women, the best women in the kingdom, and whoever you find uh, is the most favorable, let, let her be queen instead of Vashti. So Esther, who's Jewish, but hides her uh, Jewish identity from the king and, and all of his administrators, she gets picked for this contest, and then not only does she get gets picked, but she wins the contest uh, out of these more than 300 women, and she becomes the new queen. Meanwhile, her cousin Mordecai uncovers a plot to have the king assassinated, and that gets recorded in the historical chronicles of Persia, but that, that needs to be tucked away for later, because then we just sort of forget about it for several chapters, but it'll become important in another couple of weeks. In response to all of this now, um, the king, at the beginning of chapter 3, this is last week now, he decides 
that he wants to appoint a new chief operating officers of XJE. Now, what's XJE? XJE is Xerxes the Jerxes Enterprises. So he needs a new chief operating officer. And this guy Heyman comes to him and sells him on the idea that he's going to be the guy. We're going to get rid of all of these counselors. We're going to get rid of all of these committees. And it's just going to be me. And of course, and, and Haman uh, starts to take control of all this power. He's manipulating the king. Now understand, this is a weird thing about uh, King Xerxes. He has all power, he's sovereign in a worldly sense, and yet he is so easily manipulated by these people. He's manipulated at virtually every turn in this story. Even later on, after the Jews have won, you're going to see that he gets manipulated by Esther and Mordecai as well. It's just amazing how, how easily he just sort of lays down for all of these crazy ideas. And so Haman takes over in power, and Haman uh, and the king write a new decree that says everybody needs to bow down whenever Haman walks by. They make him, the king makes him into sort of a, a god. And, and Haman starts to walk around and everybody's bowing down to him except one person and it's Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. And Haman, rather than understanding that millions of people are bowing down to him and there's only one who doesn't, that should be his problem. I'll figure that out later. Haman gets really mad and, and he becomes obsessed with the fact that Mordecai won't bow down to him and that becomes a key part of this story. By the way, I've waited until today to unveil this. Many of you know that in the Jewish tradition, whenever they read the book of Esther, whenever Haman's name is read, what happens? That stunk. You got, okay, let's do this with some meaning. Haman. Yeah, it's still not very good. Let me tell you something. During the Purim celebrations for 2,500 years, they have made noisemakers to pass out to everybody that comes to the, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, Purim celebration. And during the reading of Esther, they have these noisemakers. So when you, when you read Haman, see there's this little face. Happy Purim. I've got a couple of these, okay. I've also got this. I tried this out. Can't do it indoors. It'll hurt your ears. Anyway, when you come for the Purim celebration on Saturday, March 23rd at 9 a.m., we will have all kinds of noisemakers for you as well. This is going to be a party, let me tell you. So anyway, back to the story. Haman gets really mad, and so he goes to the king and asks for another one of these Medes and Persians, irrevocable edicts, this time to annihilate the entire population of Jews. Haman asks for a decree of genocide. Now, some people say, well, why didn't he just have Mordecai executed and put away or whatever? And, and the reason is because that might actually cause a bigger stir, uh, just his own personal animosity against Mordecai, than for him to go to the king and say, listen, you've already had one uh, potential coup against you. I can tell you about another one that's brewing. It's these Jewish people who don't follow the laws of the Medes and the Persians, and they don't like you very much, and they're going to cause a rebellion, and we need to take care of all of them. So he's hiding his personal animus in this bigger project of getting rid of the Jews. And so the king says, sure, I don't want to have another revolt on my hand. And so then they cast Pur, the plural would be Purim, Pur, they cast lots to decide what day the Persians are going to attack and annihilate uh, the Jews. And it ends up being about nine months later, which again is kind of weird. Why, did they, why didn't they just go, we're going to do this next week? I mean, why wait around? 
Well, this is just the way you did things during ancient times. You would, you would cast lots, you'd cast purges, you'd open up an animal and read their vein patterns and their organs. Look it up. This is how they would dis- make these big decisions. I'm very glad we don't do that anymore on our board of elders here at Redemption Church Arcadia. Um, but they, they said, okay, nine months. But God is also in charge of that, allowing for the story to unfold the way he needs it to unfold. And at the end of chapter 3, there is an interesting detail. It says that the kingdom, Susa, was thrown into confusion because of this, this edict. So the Persian people are thrown into confusion by this edict. Now, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, uh, a lot of the commentators and the, hist- uh, the historians have said, uh, by that time, the Jews who had come from Babylon were fully assimilated into the culture, and they were... They were partners in business, and they were clients, and they were suppliers, and they had relationships with these people, and so they were confused as to why uh, all of a sudden the Jews were anathema. The, the, The second reason, a lot of people write about this. Even the ancient Persians knew that if their government could do this to the Jews, who were a productive who were productive members of their society, the government could eventually do it to them. They could find a reason to do it to them. So they didn't really like that very much either. A little bit of transparency. Uh, One of the reasons I got completely off social media more than four years ago is because of the number of posts I would see on social media, especially on what was then called Twitter, uh, of people encouraging behavior against other people that they would never stand for if that behavior was directed at them. You follow what I'm saying there? Uh, This is part of what's known as the disinhibition effect. Disinhibition effect says that anytime you have mediated communication, in other words, anytime there's a screen between you and the people you're communicating with, your inhibitions drop and you will say and do things that you would never say or do in person. That's why it's pretty scary out there in digital communication land is because people are saying and doing things that they would never do or say in person. Not everybody, but a lot of people do that. So I finally, I finally made the, the conscious decision that I would rather be ignorant and happy than to be on social media trying to follow everybody. So one scholar says it this way, if Xerxes can do this to a whole race of people, then who's next? And second of all, this confusion will actually be turned into something else by the end of the story, which we'll get to eventually, and is yet another irony in this book. So let's dig into chapter 4. I'm going to reread the first three verses that John read for us. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went, into the, went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree had reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai hears about this edict to eradicate him and all of his kinsmen. By the way, that would eventually include Esther, because she wouldn't be able to hide her identity forever. So he finds out, and he's devastated. And his devastation is caused by a combination of his truly righteous anger at how unjust this edict is. But also some scholars say there has to be just a a morsel of, of guilt that he's feeling that he's the one that has brought this upon the entire 
uh, Jewish nation. It's his, it's his fault for doing this. And so he tears his clothes and enters into a season of heavy lament. You may have noticed that some of our musicians on our praise team, they have torn jeans. They're just empathizing with Mordecai. That's, it's, it's all part of the, the big plan here. By the way, um, the last time I was truly invested in the Phoenix Suns, I know some of you know that I, I'm, tell, I'm a prophet of the Phoenix Suns. They will never win an NBA championship. Just give up hope now. Put your money somewhere else, okay? Well, actually, put your money on everybody else. So uh, anyway, last time I was fully invested in the Phoenix Suns was in 1981 when they had the best record in the NBA. They were seeded number one in the West. They were playing the eighth seed that didn't even have a winning record. The Kansas City Kings, the forerunners of the Sacramento Kings, they were terrible. And the Suns lost that first-round playoff um, uh, match in seven games. Brad, do you remember? Do you, do you recall that? I just called you out that you're as old as I am. Anyway, so, so I'm watching game seven at home um, on, on my couch in Chicago. I could care less about the Bulls. I'm still a Suns fan. I'm living in Chicago at the time. And I had on a button front shirt. And at the end of the game, when it was obvious that Kansas City had won, I stood up and I grabbed my shirt and I just ripped it apart. Ripped all the buttons off, ripped the shirt, the whole thing. I was in serious mourning for the Suns. And then later on, I said, never again. I'm just never going to be trapped by those sons again, ever again. So anyway, Mordecai's new outfit, this torn clothes, the sackcloth, the ashes, and the dust, would not allow him the sort of proximity to the king and queen that he has enjoyed since the beginning of the story. Now, why is that? The reason is because, again, in ancient times, in their cultural context, mourners, grievers, lamenters, any sad person is simply not allowed to be around an ancient king. It was a crime to be downcast in the presence of an ancient king. Some of you know the story of Nehemiah, which happens in the Old Testament. Uh, The story of Nehemiah is about 35 years away from happening after this Esther story. So it's still in the future. And the story in the book of Nehemiah um, ran into the same issue. By the way, it's a great book, great story. But Nehemiah eventually, he's a Jew, but he eventually became the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Now, you're like, well, that sounds familiar. Well, it's King Xerxes' son. And so now he's serving this king as the cupbearer. Now, why is a Jew serving the king as a cupbearer? Well, one reason is because the story of eventually, uh, the story of Esther eventually turns out well. Okay, spoiler alert for the Jews, and they survive Haman Gate, and so Nehemiah is still alive. And then also it's because Nehemiah was a faithful, God-honoring servant. But when Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem and the exiles, who had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, they, they had returned there uh, almost a hundred years earlier, they still had not built a wall around their new city that they had rebuilt. And so their city was vulnerable to anybody that wanted to come by and attack. And so they were constantly being attacked and they couldn't get the wall built. Nehemiah was grieved for his people in his homeland. And as he grieved and lamented, he feared going before the king with a sad face because he knew he could be, exec- he could be executed for such an offense. But as God would have it, Artaxerxes... Um, uh, somehow saw him, coincidentally saw him, and said, said to him, Nehemiah, why are you so downcast? Why are you so sad? He doesn't go and execute him. He asks him, he says, why are you so downcast? He says, well, my kinsmen, they haven't been able to rebuild the wall, and I feel bad for them because they keep getting raided by all these other people. And what, is, what does King Artaxerxes do? He says, well, I'm going to write you some letters to help you get back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to send you back there with money and supplies, and you're going to build that wall. 
And so he sends him back, and so it all turns out uh, well. Anyway, Mordecai is in serious grief and lament. And tearing garments was a common expression of grief and mourning for the ancients, and sometimes still practiced today, as evidenced by my 1981 son's fit. Now, it's the same with ashes and dust. Lamenters would cover themselves with ashes and dust as well. But for kings... Grief is a reminder that there is unpleasantness in the world. They're not supposed to be reminded of that. So sadness was segregated from kings at all costs. Now, this isn't reality, though. I mean, the world has problems. The world has issues. The world has sadness. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I have noticed that. There are issues out there. It's one of the reasons, by the way, I would never want, I would never run for president. Why would anybody want to be president? There must be a screw loose for anybody who would want to be a president. Brian Regan once said this. He said, how would you like to have a job where every morning somebody comes into your bedroom and nudges you to wake up going, problems, problems. I, th- no, thank you. Okay. Uh, it's enough just trying to make your way in the regular world. Okay. But also think about this. Clothes were an expensive luxury for the ancients. If you were living 2,500 years ago and you had more than two changes of clothing, you were in the top 1% of richest people in the world. The Old Navy had not been invented yet. I mean, you couldn't just run out and grab a shirt or a pair of pants for 25 bucks. So Mordecai tearing his clothes was an expensive response. But when there's an injustice, nothing is too good to sacrifice. The father sent his son to be the sacrifice for the injustice that Satan visited on us in Genesis chapter 3. He gave up his son for that. So Esther hears about this, and here's how she responds, verses 4 and 5. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. Here's what she did. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. How often do you and I see somebody in distress and we run over and try to fix the problem without asking any questions? We just, we just want to fix the problem. You know, your distress is making me really uncomfortable. So I'd like to fix your pain. I'd like to fix your distress so that I don't have to stand here and be uncomfortable about any of that stuff. Okay? We're just so uncomfortable with other people's pain. In in Romans, Paul tells us that we should weep with those who weep, not try to figure out how to keep those in pain from making us uncomfortable. He doesn't write in Romans, hey, when somebody's in pain, go figure out how to keep them from uh, making you uncomfortable. That's not what he writes. In verse 5, it was only after he rejected the new clothes that she, she decides, maybe I ought to ask a question, find out what's really going on. And here's what happens once the dialogue gets open, 6 through 11. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. That would be 10,000 talents of silver. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king on behalf of her um, king, king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. 
Now that's an important switch in this story. Go and, and plead with the king on behalf of your people. And Hathach went and told Esther and what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces, everyone knows that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come in to see the king for 30 days. Now look again at verse 8. Remember when Esther became queen in chapter 2, when she won the bachelor Persian style, Mordecai told her not to divulge her ethnicity or her people to the king. You've got to keep that quiet. But now he shifts gears. You've got to tell the king who your people are. You're the queen. You're there so that you can get this thing to maybe uh, stop. Okay? But Esther is unmotivated by Mordecai's plea. The reason is because everyone knows that the king is surrounded by heavy security. And anyone who tries to get access to the king first without being invited by the king is risking their life. Plus, remember, just four years earlier, there had been a coup attempt on his life. And so the king and the guards would take anybody approaching him as a security threat, and they would eliminate the threat without asking any questions first. You know, thrust the sword first, ask questions later. Or, or sometimes kings were just in a bad mood. Just in a bad mood, and you're interrupting them, and they don't like that, and so off with your head. And I know some of you must be thinking, but wait a minute, Esther's his wife. She can't even go to him? No. Same goes for a queen who advances on the king without invitation. It may be hard to believe, but in history there have been many queens who have not only participated in revolutions against their husband, the king, but have led those revolutions, and even they're the ones who have gotten closest enough to the king to murder the king, you know, cut off the head of the, uh, of the snake. And to add, add to the anxiety of the moment, Esther tells her cousin that it's been 30 days since she was last invited. It's a clear indication that the king has not been thinking about Esther and is not ready for her to be in his presence. So Mordecai hears Esther's response, and that sets up one of the most famous paragraphs in the, in the entire Bible. And here it is. It's verses uh, 12 through 17. And they told Mordecai what Esther had to say. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, listen to this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Why would Mordecai say that relief and assistance for the Jews is going to rise from another place? Did, did Mordecai know about some, some secret military group of Jews that had been training in some desert somewhere ready for just this moment where they could push back the entire Persian army? No. This is Mordecai saying, we are God's people. And God's going to take care of this for us one way or the other. He wants to take care of it through you, Esther. You're the one who's been appointed to this time. He wants to take care of it through you. If you refuse to do this, if you refuse to step up now, you're going to end up dying in this war, even though the rest of the Jews will be saved. That's what he's telling Esther. And then he closes the deal with this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You're the one that God has chosen. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Now, at the beginning of next week's message and and, uh, uh, going through chapter 5, that becomes an important consideration that she has not had anything to eat or drink for 72 hours before she goes to the king. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to. It's amazing. If I perish, I perish. Esther eventually came to this undeniable universal truth. It is better to perish as one of God's people than to deny God and live apart from his people. It's better to perish as one of God's people than to deny God and live apart from his people. If you get nothing else out of today, that's the key thing. That's the theme. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he's praying to God the night before he's going to be crucified. And I've always paraphrased this, this prayer in this way. You know, Father, if, if you've got a plan B, let's wheel it out and talk about it right now. Because I'm not really interested in going to the cross. But then what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. I, I'm on board with team God. And Esther came to a crossroads that sooner or later we will also come to as well. Different contexts. Different circumstances, but the same time, same kind of decision. Do I heed the call of God and act in courage, or do I deny my faith, my people, and my God and look the other way? It's the same decision Todd Beamer and his fellow travelers made on United Flight 93 during the 9-11 attacks. Rather than laying down and accepting sure death, they decided to storm the terrorists and take, try to take back the plane, knowing that if they died trying, at least they died trying. Weren't going to lay down. Todd's last words, less roll, were his, if I perish, I perish. The Psalm 84 authors wrote in verse 10, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. All of us will eventually have to walk through something that we don't want to walk through. All of us will eventually have to walk through something that might even be dangerous to us. All of us will have to walk through something that's going to be hard in order to get to a place that we want to be, a place that we need to be, a place that God is calling us to. And it's not going to be easy. Just because God has called us doesn't mean he's going to make it easy. And, and, and you need to realize that, that, that the reason it's hard may be because of something that somebody else has done to you. They've sinned against you. Or maybe it's because you have made some bad decisions up to that point in your life. But now you're facing that crossroads, that come to Jesus moment where you're being called by God to do something that you don't really want to do. But you know you have to do it. Uh, Jerry Sitzer, uh, after the horrific 1991 death of his wife, his mother and his four-year-old daughter in the same car accident. He began having recurring dreams of the sun going down with him wanting to stay in the sun's warmth and light. This, this is recorded in um, his classic, it's now considered a classic book, uh, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. He wrote it in 1994. Um, and, and I have copies of them on my shelf in, in the office because it's, it's such an amazing book. But in his dream, actually it was a nightmare, he would always chase after the setting sun. So the sun is, is that the right direction? I'm directionally dyslexic, so, okay, yeah. 
This, uh, he's chasing after the sun, but the sun's always faster than him because he wants to stay in his light, in, in the sun's light and in the sun's warmth. So he's chasing and the sun always beats him. And then he wakes up distressed every single time in darkness and with a chill because of this nightmare that he keeps having. He's, he's lamenting the death of his three girls. And so he went and he eventually told his cousin about the dream. She was some sort of a counselor. And here was her suggestion. She said, if you can, during your dream, when the sun begins to set, turn around and run the other way. Run straight into the darkness. You know why? Because the sun's going to eventually come up there and you'll be back in the warmth and the light. He said, all right, sounds goofy, but all right. He was able to somehow do that the next time he had this dream. Turned around and ran in straight. And and the sun came back, and he's in the warmth and the light. And then he quit having the nightmare. He was actually able to pull that off. How often are you and I faced with decisions that call us to have courage and to change our strategy because the status quo just won't work anymore? Remember, God's promise in Scripture is not that Jesus will take us out of the tribulation, the suffering, challenge, or the darkness, but that he will walk with us through it. Sometimes we have to walk through the darkness to get to the light. Now listen, I want you to hear this very clearly. I am no Esther. I am no Esther. And I've never been in a situation as dire as Esther's. But this paragraph has tremendous personal meaning for me. In August 2001, I had finished my um, bachelor's degree in biblical studies at Grand Canyon University, a Christian liberal arts school, small school at the time. I then went to Fuller Seminary, took four years to finish my Master of Divinity because I had to travel to Pasadena for uh, a year and a half in order to be able to do that. So I had my Master's of Divinity. I decided I wasn't going to pursue a Ph.D. because I had applied to the Hugh Down School of Human Communication at Arizona State University on their main campus, one of the greatest communication schools in the world. Believe it or not, I know academic integrity and ASU. Can you use those in the same sentence? Yes, you can. Okay. Okay. I had applied, and somehow I had gotten in, so I was going to work on a master's in human communication theory there. But I was going from what I would describe as soft, twinky educational institutions, you know, GCU, Christian educational, into not quite the lion's den, but certainly the devil's den. I was going to ASU as a pastor, as a Christian, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to hide my identity or my vocation or anything. And, and sooner or later, they were going to come for me. And I, actually, I, I started to get nervous and anxious about this. So in early August 2001, it's the night before my very first class at ASU. And I'm struggling to sleep. And finally, I get to sleep. And about 1 o'clock in the morning, I get woken up by what I thought was this audio voice that said, you've been chosen for this time. Like, okay, went back to sleep, 2.15, woken up again, you have been chosen for this time. Whatever, went back to sleep, 3 o'clock, 45 minutes later, who knows, but that you have been chosen for this time. So I said, all right, that's it, I'm getting up, I think that's in the Bible somewhere. Understand, I wasn't, I wasn't as familiar with the Bible quite as much of, uh, then as I am now. I said, that's in the Bible somewhere. I know it is. And so I went and got my concordance. He quickly found that it was the book of Esther and started reading Esther. And I was blown away, number one, by the fact that, first of all, 
Um, Esther's life was in danger. My life wasn't in danger going to ASU. I know some of you might argue, but my life was not in danger going to ASU. And yet God, in his grace, in his mercy, in his providence, and in his protection, decides to give me that verse so I go and I'd read the story of Esther. And I would understand that no matter what I thought I was going through, God was going to be with me. And that was all the power I needed. And I was able to calm down from there. There's four or five other times in my life that God has kind of spoken to me in that way. Very strange. And they've all been benchmarked uh, moments in my, in my walk with Christ and in, in my understanding of who God is and how he always provides for you. But this is one of the reasons why I love the book of Esther. God's name isn't mentioned. It shouldn't be in the Bible. Oh, please. Why did Mordecai say what he said? Because he knows God's in control. God is sovereign. By the way, I've mentioned throughout this series that this book is filled with irony. And I love irony. We'll consider this irony. In chapter 1, Queen Vashti was called. She didn't come. And she was disposed. In, Queen, in chapter 4, Queen Esther is not called. She could be disposed and executed for going. And yet she's going to go. So as we close today, it seems pretty grim at this moment, right? If you don't know the rest of the story of Esther, you're sitting there going, well, you know, she could walk up off with her head. That's it. Chapter five is going to be two verses and that's the end of the book. Okay. And yet this book, this fabulously told narrative of God's providence shows us how even in God's seeming absence, his seeming silence, even in the darkness of doubt, and even in the most unlikely of places, God shows up and works his providence. Kind of sounds like the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is precisely God's hiddenness and his seeming absence in this story that makes the book of Esther and the historical narrative contained in it so hopeful. So hopeful. Try to remember this when you believe that God has you in a dark, abandoned valley of the shadow. Uh, of death place because he has not forgotten you even there. Furthermore, I think one of the most lacking things in the community of Christian faith today is that when we're going through a difficult time, we often spend about 100% of our efforts trying to fix the difficult time and 0% of our effort asking this important question, God, what is it that I need to learn in the midst of this? What is this exposing in my character? How am I going to be drawn closer to you in the midst of this? Now, I'm not saying we should never try to fix those difficult times. Go ahead, try to fix it. But we also, at the same time, should be seeking God's counsel, seeking his face in the midst of our troubles, and ask how we're supposed to grow because of this challenge that we're in the midst of. And I hope we understand this truth. The book of Esther is not in the Bible if Mordecai and Esther could have fixed this without God's help. The book of Esther is not in the Bible if Mordecai and Esther could have done this without God. We should remember that what happens in the ensuing chapters is that while Esther and Mordecai are front and center, it is God who is the agent of provision. It's the same with the trial and the execution of the Messiah. While Jesus was front and center on the cross, it was the Father and the Holy Spirit who were his agents of provision, protection, and resurrection. This is a story of godly courage by Esther. Yes, it is. When we think of courage, we should think of Esther. She's about to turn things around, even though 
to use a football strategy, I know it's weird. I'm going to use a football um, analogy, okay? Right now, for Esther and Mordecai, they are fourth down with 31 yards to go, three seconds left in the game, and they're down by six points. That's where they are. Virtually hopeless, unless they're playing the Cardinals. Sorry, I just couldn't take it. But more than Esther's courage, which is magnificent and inspirational, this is a story of God's providence and protection. This is the archetypal form of the crucifixion and the resurrection right here in the book of Esther. And we're going to watch that unfold in the next couple of weeks. It's a beautiful narrative, a beautiful story. Let's pray together. Our Father in, in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for uh, this amazing historical narrative of Esther and Mordecai and and Xerxes, and, and even Haman. And we'll be introduced to Zeresh next week, his, his wife. It's amazing how this book purely and surely demonstrates your sovereignty. Just exactly who you are. Your provision and your protection. And so help us to lean into that. Give us the courage to lean into that. Uh, faith is a... Uh, faith is, is a step everyone has to take. No matter what they're placing their faith in, we're placing our faith in something. It might as well be you because you're the only sure thing that we can step into and know that there's provision and protection. So help us to be able to do that. We love you and we thank you for this story. We thank you for your son Jesus, the, the cross that saves us, the resurrection that gives us new life. We thank you for all that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.